0: Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days, free, by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Myers' authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or... The Audible original podcast, Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, if you're signing up for Audible today and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Centre, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me. But everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time, but signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. Toronto, 1990. It was midnight. Kevin MacDonald was wrapping up his writing day at the Kids in the Hall offices on St. Nicholas Street, in the heart of Toronto's gay village. He stepped out the door into the back alley behind the building. As he made his way home, a figure emerged and approached him from the darkness. Hey, buddy. You looking for anything? What? Are you looking for anything? Pod, hash, mescaline. Against his better judgment, Kevin stopped in his tracks. It would be rude just to blow past someone and not consider what they were saying. Hash. Do you want some hash? Oh, no. Th- thank you, no, but but thank you. Good luck. As Kevin made moves to exit the encounter, his new drug hookup stepped in his way with one more question. Hey, man, I know you. You're the guy on that show. Kevin blushed a little. He was that guy on that show. Or, at the very least, he was a guy on a show. And this guy could be in the kid's demographic. He walked away from the encounter feeling flattered. It was his first real taste of, if not fame, at least recognition. As he rounded the corner out of the alley, his mind began to wander started thinking about all the different machinations on how that interaction could have concluded until he landed on one. What if he called the cops on the guy? Wouldn't it be funny if he narked on the one guy that gave him his first celebrity moment? The idea made Kevin laugh. He made his way back to the front entrance of the building. He went in the front doors and up the stairs and back into his office where he started to write up a new sketch. Officer, we have some hash dealers in the neighborhood Could you take care of it, (laughs) please. Let's go. Thanks, Mr. McDonald. No problem, <laughs> Hi, I'm Kevin McDonald of the kids in the hall, reminding all you kids out there that thinking is good, drugs are bad. You know, when I first read the novel 1984, I actually agreed with several Big Brother's theories and thought that he got a fun rap. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite Canadian content. This is the fifth and final installment in our five-part series on the kids in the hall. Last time, the kids were awaiting the premiere of their HBO special. Its eventual warm reception led to a series order from HBO and CBC. Approaching the end of its first season, the series sat on the bubble for cancellation, That is, until Mark earned himself a well-timed Cable Ace Award for his performance. This is Episode 5, Screw You Taxpayers. When you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things, you see some not so interesting things, (laughs) and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time, we compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, we like to have a good Time, okay. (laughs) Nos gusta to goof around. All right. We have hungry pantry bonds that might startle you. It's a long story. We we feed them art materials. Art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret. So if this all sounds good to you, join us on Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. My Valentine me, a vino, spumante, bambino, a wine with glass. Spumante, bambino, my sparkling white vino. I serve it to my friends. Oh, spumante, bambino. Taste light, just right. Spumante, bambino, spumante, bambino. A razzia. It would be an overstatement to say that the kids in the hall took off in those first two seasons of the series. They had narrowly avoided cancellation at several turns. But by mid-season two, about the time they started picking up awards in Canada, the show was humming along. The five kids had brought in reinforcements to shore up their writing staff. Friends from the past like Brian Hart, Paul Bellini, and Norm Hiscock joined the show to help shoulder some of the creative burden. Norm, one of the original members of the troupe, worked as the series' head writer. He possessed the unique ability to navigate the five temperaments of the kids. He was a peace broker, or King Solomon. He was also a workhorse in the writer's room, helping bring into this world sketches like Nervous Breakfast Down and The King of Empty Promises. He was a positive influence. Hiscock kept the train on its tracks. He guided misguided creative rage, he fostered sketches, and he quelled ego outbursts, and turned in a show every week for HBO and CBC. So as not to relegate him as a footnote to this podcast, Norm Hiscock left the kids to become an important voice in American comedy. After working on 81 episodes of The Kids in the Hall, he wrote for SNL, King of the Hill, Parks and Recreation, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. The troupe had once committed itself to never repeat a sketch or character. In fact, it was a tenet of their early stage shows. But now that they had their own show, and were contractually obligated to turn out so many hours of comedy a year, they listened to the advice of their executive producer, Lord Michaels, and began cultivating a stable of recurring characters. Of course, there was Buddy Cole, who was inspired by one of Scott Thompson's ex-boyfriends. Under the right circumstances, and on the right drugs... I could fall in love with a chair. (laughs) I did once in Miami Beach, but I didn't stand a chance. It was a Corbusier original. Or Mr. Tysick, the head crusher. An idea that started with a riff in a diner. You're boring me. I'm cutting your head. I'm cutting your head. There was Sir Simon Milligan and Hecubus. Good evening, Hecubus. Are you ready? I am ready to serve you, master, and Satan. Who were born out of scott dave and kevin talking about their internal demons nice demons polite demons demons who would open the door for a lady carrying too many parcels sometimes characters only truly came together once the hair costume and makeup was applied what was originally just a single line of dialogue at the end of one of kevin's scripts resulted in the formation of one of mark's most famous characters the sketch is set in a freak show kevin plays a guy whose freak talent is to make his nose bleed on command But the conceit is, after therapy, he's trying to set boundaries for himself. He'll no longer degrade himself for others' amusement. Okay, start your nose bleeding. Yeah, make your nose bleed, huh? No. (laughs) You have to, you're a freak. I don't have to do anything, thank you very much. The sketch ends with Kevin screaming at the would-be gawkers, too. Go see the chicken lady. You'll like her. She's an emotional dependent and has to please anybody she happens to be with. Go watch her lay her eggs. In read-through, Bruce and Mark thought it would be funnier if the audience could actually see the chicken lady. We should cut to the chicken lady there, Bruce said. We should see her being emotionally dependent and laying a ton of eggs. Mark volunteered to play the role. He liked the idea of playing half chicken, half lady. He and Jerry Wraith worked together to come up with a look for the character. The 1932 horror film Freaks, directed by Todd Browning, concludes with a scene not too far from the premise of McDonald's sketch. Folks are gathered round for a sideshow, brought in by a barker to see Freaks of you Nature. About to witness the most astounding living monstrosity of all time. But the image that Browning created is one of a woman that is only really torso and arms. Her chest is full and covered with white feathers like a chicken's breast, From out the back of the velvet jacket she wears, we can see a robust set of tail feathers. It wasn't the right look for the sketch, but there were ideas in there that were good. The ample breast definitely needed to be part of the costume, they thought. They then added a huge, curly wig of white hair. And Mark wanted the character to have gnarly chicken's feet. So Wardrobe created these kind of big bird stockings pulled directly from a nightmare. In front of a mirror, Mark stared at himself in costume. He began to move like a chicken keeping his hands close to his chest, his arms tucked by his side like wings. He looked around, moving his head and jerking little gestures. When he opened his mouth, he found the voice right away. Gravel and grubs, gravel and grubs, I love to eat my gravel and grubs. Either Mark worked the costume or the costume worked Mark, but the chicken lady hatched fully formed. As he began to improvise with the crew around him, he painted the picture of a very horny, very dim-witted creature. He had found the character's hook. Mark stayed in character all week leading up to performance night. It was just too fun to let go. Later that season, Mark and Norm Hiscock would write up the Chicken Lady's first starring sketch. In it, Dave plays a man answering a singles ad, only to be horrified when he finds himself on a date with the Chicken Lady. The sketch would become a kind of Kids in the Hall standard, one that they would perform regularly throughout the years as part of their touring live shows. Later in an interview, Scott would say that it was the one character he wished he had come up with. At the time, all five of them just knew it was a hit. And it was rare that all five of them agreed on anything. They couldn't even agree on a restaurant for their lunch orders. By its third season, Kids in the Hall had found its stride, and was growing a respectable fan base in Canada from its regular Friday night time slot at 9. The show had continued to pick up awards, including two Geminis for Best Comedy Series and Best Performance in a Comedy Series for The troupe. They also received their first Emmy nomination for Outstanding Writing in a Variety or Music Program, the very accolade that SCTV had won a decade earlier. For Ivan Fekin, who had been a champion of the kids since first seeing them perform at the Rivoli in 1985, the series' success was a feather in his cap as the head of programming for the CBC. He had brought the national broadcaster a show that was garnering international recognition. While hockey and lacrosse might be our national sports, As Canadians, our national pastime is to point out which successful Hollywood actors are from Canada. Michael J. Fox, Canadian. Ryan Gosling, Canadian. Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Well, they're American, but they famously have a cottage on the Muskokas. Despite being one of the crown jewels in CBC's primetime lineup, not everybody was happy with the series. Seemed that for every fan of the show, there was a disgruntled viewer offended by what the kids were doing. The network received hate mail for what some called the filth that they were putting on the air. This didn't bother the troupe. They were used to being hated, whether it was being disinvited to the theatre sports Christmas party, or being called to the carpet at Second City, or being outcast from the writer's room at SNL. Hate mail was a far more familiar feeling than awards nominations. In fact, knowing that their show was disturbing suburban Canada was the real reward. Mark decided to lean into this stirring controversy and wrote a sketch entitled Screw You Taxpayers. It was a provocation. A red flag waved in view of the average CBC watcher. An intentionally tasteless and racist sketch, which featured Bruce in Yellowface. Hello? Hello, Mr. Lewis. Hello, Mrs. Lewis. I'm here to pick up your daughter Karen for a date. Oh, but Karen's been dead for two years. (sighs) Sorry, I I guess I am a little late. Well, see, I I had rickshaw trouble. Oh, yes. Don't blame me. I stubbed my toe on. Dave, playing Karen's mother, hands Mark and yes. Here she is. Karen, hubba, hubba. Okay, now you two have a good time, okay? Yeah, we will. And uh, don't get carried away, but if you do, play it safe. Scott, playing Karen's father, hands Mark a loose condom. Mark then steps out of the sketch and breaks the fourth wall. He goes on to explain how taxpayer dollars help pay for the kids in the hall. You see, your tax dollars feed into the government, which in turn mandates the CBC, which in turn provides funding, both whole or in part, to shows such as ours. So, like a cupful of water poured into an ocean, the atomic particles of your tax dollars mix with the whole and wind up providing for the budget of the show, uh, for the budget of that sketch, and for this piece I'm doing now, which we call. Funny enough, CBC had no issue with the sketch, airing it as planned. In fact, the only broadcaster pushback they received was from HBO, who refused to air the sketch. Not only because of its offensive nature, but because the concept of a national broadcaster and taxpayer-funded programming would largely be lost on an American audience. Fekin and the CBC would eventually have to address complaints coming from the public. But rather than censor their shows, they enacted a programming policy that split their primetime schedule. 7 to 9 p.m. would be family primetime, home to shows like The Raccoons, Roe Davin Lee, and Degrassi High. After 9, the schedule would turn over to adult primetime, where shows like Kids in the Hall could live free of needless censorship. This new policy was probably best demonstrated by Degrassi High, Schools Out. This TV movie, which served as the finale for the long-running series, aired on CBC on January 5, 1992. Its broadcast started at 8pm, and it was typical Degrassi fare. Then, as the second hour of the movie began, and the schedule turned from family to adult primetime, viewers heard this. You were fucking Tessa Campanelli? And mark the first time Fuck was broadcast on primetime Canadian television. While things were more or less tickety-boo at home for the kids, changes were brewing at HBO. The premium cable channel was shaking up their programming, and at the conclusion of Season 3, they dropped the kids in the hall from their schedule, despite having a home on Canadian airwaves. If the show were to see a fourth season, Lauren Michaels would once again have to shop the kids to U.S. broadcasters. Ladies and gentlemen, here from Montreal, Cecilia Wiley. Cecilia, what did you do? I went out and bought myself a lotto ticket, mm-hmm. and I won. And you won? <laughs> yes, you? with her special numbers. Now you say you won, and, and I got to ask you, and uh, uh, I presume twenty, thirty thousand dollars? No, a hundred thousand dollars. One hundred thousand dollars yes she has given winning lottery numbers she has brought lovers together she even predicted canada's prime minister's election and received a thank you letter from an amazed madame ketian she's jojo Sovard, world famous psychic astrologer and she has helped thousands of people change their lives you could be next are love wealth fame and fortune in your cards You'll find out when you call JoJo Psychic Alliance right now. There's a solution for every problem in the universe, and my psychics could help you find yours. Pick up the phone and call us right now. Three ninety nine US, four ninety nine Canadian, Canadian. Permanent adults only. Hi everyone, welcome to Entertainment Tonight. I'm John Tesh, and I'm Mary Hart. After years of speculation, rumors, cocktail party conversations, and just plain old gossip, Johnny Carson has finally made it official. He is not going to stay on television forever. The departure of Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show threw the landscape of late-night television into upheaval. Carson had dominated the space for nearly 30 years on NBC. He had outrated and outlasted competitors such as Joey Bishop, Dick Cavett, and Merv Griffin. So when he was scheduled to exit The Tonight Show... He was leaving behind a vacuum. NBC's competitor CBS was trying to establish a beachhead in the space for decades, never managing to best Johnny. Their last attempt had been the Pat Sajak show. Hey there in the Capital District. Are you looking for a talk show host with the appeal of Carson, the hipness of Letterman, the directness of Donahue, and the warmth of Oprah? Why don't you just ask for a four-car garage and Lifetime World Series tickets while you're at it? But if you just want a break from your late night routine, make a break for The Pat Sajak Show right after News Setter 6 Night Team Report here on TV6. And I'll see what I can do about those series tickets. Look, even if he can't get you the tickets, watch The Pat Sajak Show, weeknights at 11.30 on TV6. It was an attempted coup that lasted only 16 months. Two years on, with Carson leaving, CBS was ready to try again at late night. They began courting Lauren Michaels to head up their new 11.30 show. They hope that with his deep bench of SNL alums, they may land a whale of a new host, Bill Murray or Chevy Chase. It was in these talks, perhaps as a way of currying favor with Michaels, that the network showed interest in acquiring the kids in the hall. They made Michaels a deal to pick up the show for its fourth season. It would air in a one-hour block at 12.30 on Friday nights. Each block would consist of a new half-hour programming and a compilation of their best sketches from the previous three seasons. In addition, CBS kicked off this new relationship with the kids in the hall with a prime-time special as a way of introducing the cable show to big-time network television. And with this change came a new opening. Gone were the scratchy 8mm home videos of the troupe on the streets of Toronto. CBS had sprung for a commercial director to come in and update their aesthetic. Their fourth season intro would see the kids in a club. They sipped cocktails and partied with club kids and drag queens. As the shadowy men from a shadowy planet played their opening theme song. During the filming, they threw a real party of sorts and really got drunk. The kids were joined by their crew, writers, and friends. The slicker advertising aesthetic Bruce would later quip longed more to Saturday Night Live than it did to them. But they were making the leap to network television. A move like this did probably call for a little gloss. Season four also saw a shift away from sketches performed for a live studio audience and toward filmed pieces. Sketches like Love and Sausages, The Escape Artist, and Chalet 2000 stretched the boundaries and the budget of the show. Long-form sketches with dozens of locations, scores of extras, and high-concept aesthetics requiring the art department to work overtime. Love and Sausages, for instance, was less sketch comedy and more Kafkaesque art house film. It didn't have traditional jokes or even comic setups. It was a tone piece, Bruce McCullough and Norm Hiscock's ode to David Lynch's Eraserhead. These films caused friction among the kids. Often they were resource-sucking albatrosses designed to showcase only one or two members of the troupe. However, they were also unlike anything on television at the time. The kind of thing that if you passed it while channel surfing late at night, you would stop on the show and stick with it wondering just what the hell you were looking at. And that's just what happened to Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain when he discovered the kids. Cobain fell in love with the show. Perhaps he saw in it a troop of fellow cool nerds. He would even name drop the troop in magazine pieces. From an interview with Nardwar, the Human It No. <laughs> Maple Leaf Gardens in November. That mm, was um. I remember that with the little backstage. It was it was a nice temperature because I think it was an ice hockey rink. Yeah, It was Maple Leaf Gardens. I just remember leaving pretty much right after the show, within about 20 minutes or so. I met one of the guys from the Kids in the Hall, Scott. That's right. Nice we were with famous people. They never talk to hacks like you. Fuck no. They're on course, TV, push TV your way every in. night on Comedy Central and on the Canadian TV, and they know oh, Lauren Canadian. Michaels. We, I got to meet Lauren Michaels and Don Pardo <laughs> and everybody
1: because we're famous. Curt and
0: Scott exchanged numbers that night, promising to call one another the next time they were in each other's respective towns. of being number one in every day part. We've made it in prime time. We've made it number one in daytime with David Letterman. We think we will be number one in late night. In fact, we're pretty sure of that. And I just want to tell you, David, how delighted we are to have you part of the CBS Thank family. You. Thank you very much. David, it's my turn to be in your chair. First of all, thanks to uh, Mr. Tish, and uh, thank you very much to Howard, and, and uh, thanks to you folks for that stirring ovation. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry to hear about Mount landing. David Letterman's move to CBS was a seismic event that shook all of network late night and the kids in the hall would not remain untouched in its wake. But before that, the troupe was up for their first Emmy for writing. In their category, they were competing against Letterman's final season as host of Late Night, as well as the teams at Saturday Night Live and the Ben Stiller Show, a sketch series that had already been cancelled by Fox, but whose writing staff included David Cross, Bob Odenkirk, and Judd Apatow. And the Emmy goes to... the team from the Ben Stiller Show! I can't believe it. Uh, somebody had to represent the Fox Network tonight, so we showed up. Uh, I, you know, we, we all worked really hard on the show. Not many of you probably know who the hell we are. <laughs> but uh, it was a great opportunity. I want to thank uh, all of our agents, our mothers, our fathers, our girlfriends, our wives. Uh, this, I can't believe we're here. This is great. Uh, Judd? Molly Madden, uh, Jimmy Miller, everybody who made this possible. Thank you. And the Fox Network, I think you missed, you know, something here. I mean, <laughs> anyway, okay. Thank you. Good night. Great times, cool times, it's summertime. And they're back at McDonald's, Canada's Wonderland Cups. Free with any medium soft drink. A new one each week. The Smurfs, Scooby-Doo, <laughs> and the Flintstones, too. And hey, McDonald's has coupons to pay $4 off your Canada's Wonderland passport. Come on, great summer. And Canada's Wonderland Cups, good time, great taste of McDonald's. Later this summer, a new world of late-night television begins on CBS. Think of it as a miniseries that never ends. Starting August 30th, same Dave, better time, new station. Is someone frying bologna? The Late Show with Dave Letterman premiered on August 30th, 1993. For once, the Tonight Show had a worthy ratings rival. While CBS's courtship with Lorne Michaels ended once Letterman was signed, the producer did enter the talk show space. NBC put him in charge of replacing Letterman at 12:30. This is not a solicitation for money. My name is Conan O'Brien. I'm the new host of NBC's late night talk show. If you could just copy this letter and send it to ten of your friends, I'd appreciate it. Although I don't mean to suggest as part it, of a CBS we'll deal, you... David Letterman was also able to produce the show that would follow his in the schedule. A year later, TV, late night conversation. Meet the master. The late late show with Tom Snyder. Tonight on 46. Tom Snyder would take the 1230 slot five nights a week. This meant that the kids in the hall were bumped from their home on Friday nights. CBS had renewed the series for a fifth season, but it would be pushed back farther and farther down the schedule, often airing at times that only security guards and heroin addicts were awake. And then the troupe received a familiar phone call. Look, the network is pulling the plug after season five. Lauren Michaels broke the news. Now, if you wanted, I could shop you one more time. I know MTV is interested, but I need to know what it is you want to do. For me, I think five seasons is good. That's what we did on Saturday Night Live. We did five seasons, then took a little break. Billy Danny The troupe weighed their, their the options Mark, a consummate action. sketch player, wanted to keep the show alive, but the others were tired and tapped out. They were ready for a break. In this way, they had advanced notice. They could end the show on a high point, bringing some conclusion to their favorite characters. In April 1994 Between shooting seasons four and five, the kids in the hall embarked on a live comedy tour. The five members of the troupe had just arrived at the Fairmont in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in advance of their next gig. They had checked into the hotel and were waiting for the elevator up to their rooms. Kevin was bugging Scott about their next scheduled show, which was to be in Seattle a few nights later. Are you going to call him? I'll call him. Good. Tell him we'll put him on a list at the door. Oh, I'm sure he'll just be delighted to know that he doesn't need a ticket. They entered the elevator. Just before the door shut, a tall man with California blonde hair stepped in. The troop froze, five mouths agape, ten eyes round like saucers. They recognized him instantly. They were sharing an elevator with Wayne Gretzky, the great one, number 99, at the time the most famous hockey player in the world. Gretzky nodded his head and acknowledged his fellow travelers. Hey, lads. They smiled. For a group that was rarely at a loss for words, they just stood there staring at a guy who at 33 was already an icon. So you guys playing somewhere in town? Holy shit, they thought. Not only are they sharing an elevator with number 99, but he knows who they are. Well, of course, he hosted SNL. He must be a big fan of comedy. Kevin confirmed that they were indeed performing later that night. Gretzky nodded. So what kind of music you play? It was a slap shot to the groin. He wasn't a fan. He was just polite. Oh, we uh, we're we're actually a, a comedy troupe. Um, not not a band, <laughs> not not musical. He narrowed his eyes as if to get a better look at them. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I think I've seen your show. They play it on channel two at like three a.m. I think. And with that, the great one stepped out of the elevator and was gone, never to think about that interaction again. The troop was left holding their egos in their hands. Kevin and Scott were staying in rooms across from one another. Before splitting up, Kevin said one more time, Are you going to call him? I'll call him. When he got in his room, Scott, out of habit, turned on the television and switched the channel to much music. He then pulled out his wallet and the scrap of paper he had been given by Kurt Cobain with his phone number scrawled on it. As planned, Scott was going to call him and invite him to their Seattle show in just a few days. As he was about to pick up the phone receiver, his attention was drawn to the television. He's been found with a shotgun wound to the head at the home of Nirvana lead singer Kurt Cobain. A police spokeswoman says that the body has been there about a day. Uh, the medical examiner has yet to identify the body. Police said that the body was found this morning by an electrician who had been doing some work at the home. And he saw the body through a window. Police say they had to break in. Scott picked the up the phone. It was Kevin. Whether are you watching tv He's no, fucking dead scott God, thought cobain kirk cobain had taken his own life two days later the troop attended his home home. vigil in seattle now once again we don't have a confirmed report that this is in fact the body of kirk Cobain, but a person who has died of a shotgun shot, wound to the head was found earlier today in kirk cobain's home we'll have more details for you as they become available to us on FAT. Rona's aiming for fun this summer, but what she's looking for is no game. She's got her sights set on the brand-new Toronto tee. That's right, the classic's back with a bold new look and great colors. Wear it around town while you're just having fun or when you have to push something around. If Rona spots you and your nifty tee, you could win great prizes. You're wearing a Toronto tee. You're a winner. Les Chateau's got him. And so does the City Store. Pick up your Toronto tea today and get ready to win. For the fifth season of the show, the kids in the hall returned to performing more sketches live for an audience. All the film pieces from the previous season had served to erode their chemistry and somewhat alienate them from one another. They returned to their roots of performing together. The final show of the season was designed as a finale. The material included a series of sketches that were presented as previously censored by the network. Sketches like Hitler blanking a donkey. Daddy, what's that bad man doing to my pet donkey? Well that's not just a bad man, son. And there's Hitler. You just f- your pet donkey. And the home run, which featured Bruce as a character called Cancerville. Hey Joe, would Joe hit a home? Run for me today? <laughs> Sure, kid. Anything for you, on account of your dying. The final sketch of the show was a Kathy and Kathy, with all five members of the troop playing women. The sketch concludes with everyone being fired. I almost oh forgot. My God. We will be requiring that you all turn in your security passes, oh. your coffee mugs, oh, oh and your wigs. What? <laughs> oh, come on. Oh. Oh. They take off their wigs and throw them on an adjacent desk. The five members of the troupe stood in a semicircle before a live studio audience. They then stepped out of the sketch. In their dresses, their cheeks still stayed with blush and took their final bows. In the footage, you can even spot Mark, not known to be the emotional one of the troupe, tearing up as they give their final goodbyes. Later, the Bamboo Club on Queen Street West, just a stone's throw away from their old Rivoli stopping grounds, played host to the rap party. It was a massive blowout, one of just a few times that all five members of the troupe socialized outside of work. Guests of the rap party received a silver toaster engraved with the message: "Kids in the Hall, 1989 to 1994. We're Toast." During the party, Dave, Kevin, Mark, Bruce, and Scott found a quiet moment outside the club to gather. "'Smoke some cigarettes and reflect.' "'You know—' Bruce started as he ashed his cigarette into the neck of his beer bottle. "'If we weren't in a troop together, I think we'd all be friends.' The other members shared perplexed looks, not sure whether to be insulted or— "'No, I mean, left our own devices. I think we would have hung out. But making the show, we saw each other all the time, so who needed to hang out after that? Anyway. Sounds cold, but—' They then stared at the night sky as the party raged on inside. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced by Sonia Jumidi, with additional voices by Matt Barnett. This was episode five in our five-part series. But I'll be back with a special bonus episode, a sixth installment, The Kids Take on the Movies in Brain Candy. And in the weeks that follow, we'll finally bury this series with a featured interview with John Semley, author of This Book is About the Kids in the Hall, And another one with the one and only Paul Bellini. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps the podcast get noticed. And we're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at knockaboutmedia. In researching the show, I relied heavily on This Book is About Kids in the Hall by John Semley and One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers, as well as the print and online interviews. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario, you can find more Canadian ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at it's Ryan Barnett. There, you can follow the progress of my upcoming graphic novel biography of Buster Keaton. If you want to watch Kids in the Hall, their entire CBC series is available now on Amazon Prime. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Thank God that's finally over. A knock about the media original Hold on.